So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of speculation that you know Martelli basically uh, chose Jovenel um, to sit in the seat until he could um, until he could run again. And indeed, uh, in the in the month before the assassination, um, and perhaps even before that, Martelli and his team were making visits um, uh, to. Uh, people in Washington, just sort of um, promoting in advance his candidacy. Welcome back to a new episode of Africa's a Country Talk, which is a weekly talk and interview show brought to you by Africa as a Country. I'm your host, William Shorkey, coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, and Africa as a Country Talk is produced, as always, by Antoinette Engel in Cape Town. If you missed last week's episode, last week's episode was actually a bit of a special episode. It was part of our collaboration with the radical left-wing South African publication, Amandla. And what we did is we replayed a conversation held between Shaira Kala, who is an Amandla editorial collective member, as well as Ayabonga Kawe, who contributed to a new issue of Amandla. And the purpose of that conversation was to launch the new issue of the magazine. And this issue of the magazine predominantly focused on South Africa's local government elections, which happened on the 1st of November, and specifically thinking through different perspectives on the ways to transform municipalities in South Africa, the way South Africa's political class has failed many of its citizens, and the way progressives and left-wing organizers fighting for alternatives. So do check that episode, do check out that issue. And we look forward to collaborating more and more with Amandla in the future. So for today's episode, we're very excited about today's episode. We are going to be talking about a very pertinent issue and an issue that hasn't received, we think, enough detailed media coverage. We wanna understand exactly what is behind the ongoing social, economic, and political crises in Haiti? And to help us through this conversation, we're very fortunate to be joined by Pooja Bhatia, who is a writer that has written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Review of Books, as well as the London Review of Books, as, and many other outlets. And that includes The Economist, where she was their Haiti correspondent. As a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, Pooja currently lives in Northern California, where she's also working on a novel set in the aftermath of the 2010 Haiti earthquake. So Pooja, thank you so much for joining us on the program. And to begin to understand the place that Haiti is at right now, I think it makes sense to perhaps start with what happened on the 7th of July when Jovenel Moise was assassinated. And that's what dominated headlines for a while and began this really terrifying political crisis. But before we try to get to grips with why he might've been assassinated, could you help us understand exactly who he was? Because when he came to power, he was a bit of a relatively unknown figure and many people wondered how he, he made his name in politics. Uh, I mean, that's a very good question. First of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, about Moise, um, he was an obscure, plantain farmer um, and really didn't have political experience. He was handpicked by Michel Martelly, who was the president of Haiti from 2011 through 2015. Um, you know, he also, it, it appears um, that he benefited in advance of his um, sort of political debut. He benefited from uh, contracts related to an enormous tranche of money um, from Venezuela called uh, in, in a Petrocaraib deal, basically. Um, so he was among the beneficiaries of that money. Um, and, um, you know, they he called himself the banana man in homage to the plantains. <laughs> um, yeah, so political novice, um, handpicked by Martelli, and one thing to know about um, the presidency in Haiti is that uh, the constitution presently prohibits 
presidents from serving consecutive terms. So you can have two terms, but they can't be back to back. So mm. in, you know, over the past, I guess, 35 years, maybe 20, 20, sorry, 30, 35 years, what has happened is that presidents will kind of, uh, anoint is a, is a strong word, but they'll sort of find someone who can sit in the seat. Um, this is ideally how I think it would function for a, a Haitian president. Had, it did function that way between um, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide and René Préval, who kind of did mm. back and forth, um, interrupted by uh, U.S. meddling and uh, coup, but <laughs> that was the basic <laughs> idea. So, so basically that, so finding bench warmers to, to keep the seat warmers, warm and then you'll right? come back. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of speculation that you know Martelli basically uh, chose Jovenel um, to sit in the seat until he could um, until he could run again. And indeed, uh, in the in the month before the assassination, um, and perhaps even before that, Martelli and his team were making visits um, uh, to. Uh, people in Washington, just sort of um, promoting in advance his candidacy. Mm. And and could you tell us a little bit more about Martelli? Because he was elected in the aftermath of the devastating 2010 earthquake. And that was a bit of a weird election because in spite of the catastrophe that had completely crippled Haiti, a mass rush for the election happened as soon as possible. A bit of U.S. involvement in the election, and Martelli was was their preferred candidate. So, could you take us back to to how Martelli himself uh, ascended into power? Yeah. So Martelli also didn't have traditional political experience in Haiti. However, he was an enormously popular showman. Um, he uh, is a singer. Uh, he sings compa um, and um, uh, you know, was known for these very ribald performances in which he would often dress, you know, he would, he would, um, he would swear, he would smoke, he would drink, he would, um, he would often dress in sort of uh, way, scandalous ways that were meant to shock. Mm. Um, and he also, even though he wasn't formally involved with politics, he, in the 1990s, um, and, you know, throughout uh, in the 1990s, especially late 80s, 1990s, was a kind of outspoken supporter of um, the uh, outspoken, actually, opponent of Aristide, who was the socialist liberation theologian. Um, and, you know, he very much sided with um, the kind of right wing groups that wanted to um, that often worked with cahoots with the United, in cahoots with the United States to um, undermine Aristide's presidency. So um, Martelli, that election itself was um, uh, really disheartening to see um, mm. as someone, you know, I'm an American. At that time, it was, you know, I think America in the United States, people were sort of excited about the prospects of democracy, you know, because um, we had recently uh, elected Barack Obama and, you know, this whole change, you know, be the change, make the change, whatever. Mm. Um, and um, so as a kind of probably naive reporter, um, to watch this election was extremely disheartening. So first of all, um, it was slated for November. Um, the first round was slated for November, um, 10 months before the country had that enormous earthquake in which, you know, they still don't know how many people died in it. Um, and they never will. Um, I think that reliable estimates are probably between 150 to 220,000. Um, that's an enormous, enormous number. Um, about 1.5 million people were displaced. Um, and of course, when you have a kind of event um, like that, you find that um, it's a uh, Oh, oh uh, also 28 of 29 government ministries collapsed in the earthquake. So you also had a lot of uh, mm. infrastructure that was just gone. And so um, 
the prospect of holding an election when um, the country lay in ruins is was it kind of scandalized a lot of people or like was very upsetting um, because you know, what about your papers? What about registering people to vote? What about polling stations? Are these elections really going to be um, open and accessible to all? Um, so that didn't really bode well. Um, the argument from a lot of Haiti's friends who are international friends, I say that with a bit of um, irony. Um, <laughs> so uh, their argument was that, you know, uh, Haiti needed a legit elections were due, um, and Haiti needed um, a legitimate, a democratically legitimate um, leader to disperse or to like head up the dispersal of the reconstruction funds and to kind of oversee the reconstruction. So I think that that's a that's a good argument. However, the um, the conditions on the ground really were not um, conducive to an open election, and in the in the event. Um, you know, it was the first round was in November of 2010. Um, you know, the morning was, I remember reporting that morning and I, I went to um, various polling stations and, you know, there are a lot of people who couldn't find their names on the, on the list of registered voters, even though, um, uh, even though that was, you know, they had been told that was their polling station. There were a lot of people who found, you know, the names of people who had died in the earthquake on the on the on the polling and the um, voter rolls. In fact, even the um, Preval's candidate, who was the government candidate, um, couldn't find his name. I remember um, at his polling station and wasn't wow. able to vote. So there was a lot of um, there was a there were a lot of problems, and that's even before you get to the allegations of fraud. Um, by midday. Um, Martelli, uh, this singer, was leading a, with, along with a bunch of other uh, opposition candidates, all of them running um, against one another, but also trying to unseat the government of Preval's candidate. Um, they led a they led a protest in the you know in the middle of the day, basically, and um, uh, the polls were shut down. So this is basically a first round that is annulled. Um, midday or so it would seem. Um, but then the next day after that uh, aborted first round, you surprisingly have Martelli um, and a few others saying that they actually like, uh, that, that actually they, they will stand by the results of this first round. Does that, does that make sense? It was kind of complicated. Yeah, it was like, yeah. I mean, after something like that happens in an election, like, the choice would be, well, we kind of have to redo this, right? Like it didn't mm. really work out. I don't know how you can really get a legible result from that kind of disorder. Um, and that was um, Martelli's argument. But, um, mm. but in, you know, there was widespread speculation that he was told that if we counted the results, like he, he would be one of the two people in the runoff. You know, what I'm interested to know uh, now is at the time, why had... America backed Martelli over the the other candidates who were running. I think it was uh, Preval's choice was Jude Celestine, and I think there was another person by the name of uh, Milan de Maniga, who was the wife of I think an ex-president uh, who was also in the running. Um, what what about Martelli? Despite his his very novice background, uh, made him sort of like the international consensus candidates at that extremely critical juncture of having to lead uh, Haiti out of a, of a devastating earthquake and, and administer sizable amounts of funds in order to do that? I, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good question. I think that there were probably a few factors. The main one was that, well, I don't know. I think that there were probably two two big factors. One is that Martelli was perceived as the candidate who would go along with um, United States plans to quote build back better. Um, so what that meant is, you know, about a year after his inauguration, maybe even less, maybe immediately after his inauguration, you started to see these kind of banners around. Um, uh, and, you know, a lot of money going to business class hotels 
basically the the mantra was Haiti is open for business. Meanwhile, you mm. still have, you know, maybe a million people living in the capital um, under tents in these terrible conditions. Um, uh, but, you know, we're going to invest, you know, a few hundred million dollars in a business class hotel. So, um, so that was one factor. The other factor, I think, is that they're really sick of Preval. Um, uh, he, uh, for, for reasons that maybe are, uh, I think he was kind of difficult to work with. Um, and mm. I think that they, they said that they're, you know, the, the, his party or the party that he kind of designed for his candidate, Unite, um, had uh, committed a lot of fraud um, uh, during that morning as well. So, um, yeah, I think that they were, I think that, and, you know, to be fair, like, in my memory, like a lot of people in Haiti were sick of Preval too, right? He's mm. like this, this wonderful, um, he was a very, very stabilizing um, influence for many years. But after the, after this devastating earthquake, he kind of retreated, you know, um, he retreated from public view. Um, he didn't really kind of do much to, in public to um, energize reassure like console the population so i think that had something to do with it too mm. and and now fast forwarding again to to moi moise coming coming into power um thinking about his assassination and the the period of instability that led up to it so beginning i think in 2018 the widespread protests began across the country happening almost weekly against his regime. One proximate triggering event was in 2018 when he bowed to, to IMF pressure to hike fuel prices. And so there was mounting discontent uh, against Moise. Um, and another another catalyst for, for that discontent was his attempt to try and subvert this rule that Haitian presidents can't run for for consecutive terms. So uh, could you help us understand the grievances that a lot of Haitians started to, to have against Moise? And then when he was assassinated, what was the response to, to his sudden passing? There was a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of grievance against Moise. Um, and, you know, you're right to pinpoint it to that, um, that period uh, I think it was three day, three years, almost to the date before um, his assassination in 2018, when uh, the Haitian government vowed to IMF pressure to um, to uh, take away a fuel subsidy, and that, uh, you know, I mean, that just created a lot of discontent. You can see, you can see now, um, uh, just to kind of make a digression forward. Right now, Haiti has been in the middle of a fuel crisis for, I think, going almost three weeks. Um, actually, it'll be three weeks this Sunday, um, where people, just people, hospitals, um, commuters, people who can't go, I mean, everything in Haiti depends on fuel. So when you, when you remove a subsidy for fuel, you basically um, add a lot to the cost of living, and you're basically hitting people who really can't afford it. Um, so that was uh, that was kind of the start. There were a lot of protests at that time, um, and eventually, uh, the government backed down on that on the removal of that subsidy. Um, however, at the same time, there were a lot of questions around what I mentioned before, where the money, where the Petrocari money went, and um, students. And then some, a bunch of activists basically staged um, sit-ins in front of the, the kind of um, the court that is in charge of the uh, accounting and stuff, um, demanding an investigation. Um, so, uh, so that was, I mean, that was kind of the beginning. Like they managed mm -hmm. to get the investigation. Moise said, um, Moise said, uh, Moise uh, greenlighted an investigation. It showed an incredible amount of. Um, funds that were mismanaged, wasted, kicked back, um, and then 
uh, it soon enough, the investigation showed that Moise himself had been a beneficiary. So, um, so that really didn't do much for his popularity. Um, now, Moise wanted to, as you mentioned, he wanted to push through a constitutional referendum that would uh, have allowed presidents to seek consecutive terms. Um, and, you know, it would have done a bunch of other things as well and arguably would have increased his personal hold or whoever the president is, his personal hold on a lot of the machinery of government, which is supposed to be like kind mm -hmm. of power is supposed to be dispersed and arguably the Haitian constitution um, maybe has power be, is, is a little, it's like a kind of reaction to Duvalierism and that um, it maybe is a little too frightened of centralized power. And so it calls for all of these elections all the time. And, you know, um, you know, maybe the country really isn't equipped to do that. But at the same time, um, you know, the population really didn't like the idea of this constitutional reform that seemed engineered to keep Moise in power and increase his hold and evisceration over um, government, other government institutions. So, um, you know, his election, the election that brought him to power um, was like, it, I think if possible, it was even messier than the one that brought Martelli to power, the kind of imprint of mm -hmm. the United States on the result was not as sort of overt, but um, it was an extremely protracted affair that lasted from 2015 to 2016. And when he uh, was inaugurated, you know, I mean, Haiti was due constitutionally for elections again in 2021 in February. And so, um, uh, but Moise argued that because the elections had taken such a long time, he was entitled to another year in his term. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than kind of deal with this through the normal, I mean, not normal, I mean, you know, in the in a lot of places, like you would um, kind of have this battle going through the courts. But at this point, the um, so many people that would be would that would have the constitutional authority to to kind of determine this claim were just not in their offices. So uh, so then a lot of the opposition wasn't like they didn't want an assassination. You mm. know, they but they they. Um, they uh, they just wanted him out of power and they wanted a new government. Why why was he assassinated? Because it's it's interesting to think about how the assassination itself was kind of somewhat unpredictable. I mean, a number of theories that I've seen is that in the weeks leading up to his assassination, as you said, there were calls for him to resign and uh, one and gang leader uh, Jimmy Barbecue Charizier had threatened revolution, basically, if Moise hadn't stepped down. And apparently that had Haiti's ruling class clutching their pearls and Moise had to go to any costs. Um, in the months leading up to his assassination, he was apparently also setting his sights on, on some members of, of Haiti's oligarchy um, and and that made him really unpopular amongst amongst elites. So, why was he assassinated? Because it does the more details started to trickle out, seem like a very well coordinated plan. It was obviously executed successfully, and and the people that wanted him dead got what they want. Um, but why did they? Why was this the price to pay uh, for him to to go? Ah, uh, I think that's a great question and I don't know the answer it's uh it's incredibly <laughs> it's incredibly complicated you know apparently mm -hmm. um uh the the America the United States's FBI was invited to go and like kind of add some I guess investigative muscle um to the investigation into his assassination um but they left after like a week or something like that because they they weren't like getting anything done. They weren't getting the information they needed. Um, I, it was either last month or the, maybe the month, maybe the month before, um, uh, the prosecutor on the case actually, 
uh, summoned uh, the de facto prime minister Ariel Amri to court um, because it was, you know, his phone record showed that he had made multiple calls to a prime suspect um, in the hours of after Moise's assassination. Um, Henri fired the pro or fired the prosecutor, right? So, um, uh, you know, I think that uh, Jimmy Cherizier is he talks he has a big populist game in a way, mm -hmm. um, but I'm not really convinced that uh, I'm not really convinced that uh, it's very genuine, you know. Um, mm. He's just uh, at this point, G9, his uh, his gang has created so many problems for people. You know, I mean, the daily life in Port-au-Prince uh, is really very difficult. Um, a lot of people that um, a lot of people have left, you know, in the past three to five years, especially if they can. Um, even if they can't, as we see from the, the um, people, the refugees who are trying to seek asylum at the United States border. Um, uh, the fuel crisis makes it very difficult if you're trying to um, if you're trying to do normal things like go to work or go to school or um, take your kid to the hospital like you it's just it's almost a no-go um, and uh, if you're an activist or if you're someone who's trying to create change or trying to um, pressure the government for accountability, it's it's really difficult. You know, there have been a ton of assassinations of um, activists um, leading up mm. to the Moise um, assassination. And um, even after um, there have been you know, something like 600 30 kidnappings in the first nine months of this year. So um, it's not safe to be someone in Haiti who wants to try to change Haiti. Mm. I'm interested to know what is the, you know, what is the, the distribution of power in Haiti? Because it seems like this complicated and uneven arrangement between uh, concentrated oligarchy of between, I read somewhere, maybe 20 to 29 families in, in Haiti control its economic uh, decision-making, policy setting, and direction, and all of that. And you have a whole bunch of powerful gangs in the mix, which exercise a lot of control in urban areas. And you have all of these organizations and actors uh, determining the the agenda of of the states uh and all venal and self-interested and and not really serving the the haitian people so well yeah what is the composition of 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 haiti's as ruling class and how does how does power work um i mean i think that's a great question um yeah, very a, a very small number of families control very much about Haiti, um, and um, you know it's. I think that there are a couple of things that are at the, that are. I mean, you have an enormous wealth inequality. You have an oligarchy. Mm -hmm. You have um, gangs that. Um, uh, arguably Moise empowered um, to kind of do his bidding or something like that in the in the in a lot of the poor areas um, and then they kind of became out of his control um, he couldn't really control them but I think that um, you have a lot in other words that's kind of extra statal a lot that's extra mm. judicial um, and that's because Haiti's institutions, it's uh, the institutions that are supposed to be legitimate, democratically legitimate and accountable to people are really, um, are really hollowed out now. Um, and you can't really get much done. And then you have, I mean, on top of that, I think we would be remiss if we didn't kind of consider um, the role that the United States has played especially the United States, but to an extent also Canada and France in um, 
subverting uh, Haiti's democracy over the past 30 years. Um, you know, a Haitian leader really historically has had to serve, you know, you think that they're supposed to be accountable to the population that elects them, but it turns out that they're also mostly uh, very accountable to um, the United States, especially. Mm. What? How did? How did the United States end up exercising such a powerful grip over Haiti? So, of course, there's the fact that it occupied Haiti between 1915 and 1934 for 28 years, completely changed the fabric of the society by, for example, changing its constitution to permit land ownership when, in previous iterations, no foreigner could own land, uh, undermined its sovereignty during that time. And since its departure has, as you've pointed out, sort of been meddling in and out, ensuring that its preferred candidates win elections, ensuring that those who are too radical or sympathetic to socialist and emancipatory ideas are, are quickly kicked out. Uh, so what? why is, is the United States so interested in in inferior in Haiti, what strategic role or otherwise does Haiti play in its neo-imperial project, if I could put it that way? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very, very good question. Um, at this point, it's been various things over the years, right? So it was interesting in the, in the email that you sent me, you brought up um, de Marseille Estime, right? Um, and he was a socialist. He was there. It's interesting because he, um, you know, he was a socialist. He had all of these plans for investments and things that um, that Haiti still needs. You know, seventy years after um, after he was he he went into exile. Um, uh, labor protections, minimum wage, education, um, reforestation. Um, but he really didn't have the money for those plans. And at the time, um, you know, he was haunted by debts that Haiti had accrued during the United States occupation, which had ended um, like a dozen years before he even took power. So you see throughout Haiti's history, I don't remember when they finally paid off um, the, you know, the uh, indemnity that uh, France forced uh, mm. Haiti to play back at pay back in 19, 1828, but it was astoundingly late in the game. And so you have a lot of, um, you have a lot of things that could be used for um, public projects um, and things that could be used to reduce inequality and um, invest in the country. But a lot of that money has historically gone to paying off debt or debt service, which is especially like nauseating. Um, and then you look at someone like, uh, and so why, why did that happen? Um, I mean, I think that from, I think after, during the Cold War, um, uh, the United States really, uh, really was frightened of communism in the region, right? It had, there's Cuba mm -hmm. literally next door, um, and Duvalier, uh, successfully, both Duvaliers really kind of played off that fear, um, and uh, you know, managed to get a lot of support for their regimes um, by promising to kind of keep communism at bay. Um, you fast forward to kind of Aristide, and you look at Aristide elected in like the most successful, well, I mean, the first <laughs> the first successful democratic elections that Haiti had, and you know, just incredible turnout incredible like mandate, incredible popular will. And then he's kind of wiped out. And that was in um, the early months of 1990. And he sort of um, removed from power just like nine months later, you know, um, mm. on a, you know, by aided by the CIA, which I think that by people who are aided by the CIA. And I think that, um, I think that um, in a lot of ways, even 10 years later, he had another, kind of aborted term, right? He served from 2001 to 2004. And um, because the United States uh, basically saw fit to, and that, and, you know, used its power with the Inter-American Development Bank to um, choke off like kind of aid for Aristide's 
um, government. So again, you have a kind of repetition of um, repetition of what happened very early on in the Cold War, um, even though we're past the Cold War. So um, uh, and that really undermined his ability to govern. Um, I mean, they set an embargo basically, which is just like incredibly debilitating for a country mm. that depends on so much um, trade. So um, I think that a lot of times, I think what I, I think that back in, I mean, as late as 2010, like you're still kind of dealing with these cold warriors, mm. I guess you'd say, like the, mm. the institutions have a really long memory and they, um, their memory and their processes kind of eclipse um, events on the ground, you know. Mm. Any any chance that would change under a Biden administration? So I guess one way Biden's presidency is kind of bucked against previous trends is that in the aftermath of, of Moise's assassination, there were widespread calls for a very muscular response from the United States, which, which didn't happen. Um, and is there a sense in which Biden, who has paid a lot of lip service uh, throughout his presidency about trying to reconstitute the global international order among along along fairer and more just lines, is is there any sense that uh, looking ahead to, for example, the November November seventh election, which we'll talk about just now, that the United States has changed its its relationship is, is in the process of changing its relationship to Haiti? Mm -mm. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Mm. Not at all. Um, I mean, so, okay, so I think that this this question about like, you know, the swift and muscular response, you just yesterday or the day before you have the Washington Post reiterating that call, um, you know, to send in, send in the troops, which has been the kind of knee jerk reaction. So I don't think that, um, I don't think that, I don't know if that's going to happen. I think that um, I think that there's incredibly um, minimal, even negative appetite among um, in the Biden administration for getting involved. Um, but I mean, post Afghanistan, right? Like, mm -hmm. I just can't, I can't really see it right now. You see that um, actually instead of behaving. So what's happening, you know, as I mentioned before, you have all of these people seeking asylum, all these Haitians seeking asylum, um, many of whom have traveled you know, thousands of miles um, from the south, south of South America up through Central America and reach the Mexican border, a journey that can take, you know, years, um, four or five years. And, um, and you have them there and they're not even being allowed to, um, to claim asylum, which is, you know, a matter of international humanitarian law and is also a matter of United States law. So I don't really mm. see, they're just being, like a lot of them are just being deported um, without even a chance to like exercise their human rights. So I don't really see the Biden administration behaving in a more just way. And another sort of tell telling, um, I think one of the big questions for me is whether um, the Biden administration will be repeating the, the kind of pattern that we've seen in Haiti's democracy over the past 10, 20 years, which is to say elections make elections really quick what we need is stability and even if stability comes at the expense of justice fairness democracy like let's do it right let's get some like supposedly elected leaders in there um so that would be like one route that they could take um uh another route they could take would be to listen to you know there's an enormous um coalition of actors from civil society who, despite COVID and despite the danger of being on the streets, have managed to work together and put together um, a kind of blueprint for toward the future. Um, so I think that there's a question of what the Biden administration is going to choose. Are they going to choose that process, which might take a little bit longer and might require more diplomatic investment, or are they going to just get someone in there? Um, I think that just getting someone in there is incredibly corrosive to um, democracy. In in the run up to those elections, because I mean, it does unfortunately seem like the American preference is once again to just 
rush through elections, have someone in power claim you've eased the instability because now there's a figurehead um, and Haiti's open for business yet again. Looking to the 7th of November when these elections are, are built to happen, what faces might we see there? Who are the political parties that are contesting power? Are we going to see a return of Martelly maybe? Uh, we're going to see a return of other people who have been playing the musical chairs of, of presidential politics? Uh, are there challengers who might be interested in, in taking Haiti to a generally progressive direction? Or is the electoral system just corrupt to the point of repair that it cannot yield any route for transformation? So, you know, the elections that were scheduled for November 7th have been postponed and a new date has not been set yet. I don't think that anybody's really ready to have an election right now. Like people don't feel safe mm. going out on the street. Um, like, um, I think that, uh, I think that what could happen is, and I've, I think I've heard, I don't know if this is the latest, but there's like a call to the State Department wants to have the elections early next year in 2022. Um, that coalition, that um, commission, it's called the Commission for a Haitian Solution to the Crisis. Um, they're kind of calling for um, first a constitutional referendum um, and then to hold elections under a new constitution. And then I think their timetable is something like you know, you'd have that referendum in 2022 sometime, and then um, maybe you'd be able to have elections in, at the end of 2022, and then um, new leaders would um, take office early in 2023. Um, but at this point, you know, it's just, um, it's uh, very difficult to imagine elections happening mm. in, in, given what we're, what I'm hearing about Haiti. What are some of the, the constitutional changes that people want to to be implemented before elections happen? Um, I think that I I actually have not reviewed those, but I would imagine that people would want a more streamlined process. So I mentioned before that um, the Constitution of 1987 was in many ways a reaction to um, Haiti having, having been through 30 years of dictatorship. Um, it was aimed to prevent a strong man. And the problem was that it's it's got so many processes that are so kind of, so many electoral processes that in a lot of ways it's, it's like, it's very difficult to pull off. You know, this is a very, this mm. is a vision of a very kind of um, deep and thoroughgoing democracy that requires a lot of administrative overhead, just an incredible amount of administrative overhead. Um, for instance, um, there is something in something, the body that oversees um, Haitian elections is called the, um, uh, the Electoral Council. Um, since, since, I mean, every election, Haiti hasn't yet had um, a permanent Electoral Council. It's always been a, a, a provisional Electoral Council which means that it's a kind of the body that's at the heart of all of this, like kind of lacks legitimacy to begin with. Um, so I, if, if I'm remembering correctly, the kind of process for putting in place a permanent electoral council is in, it's just really baroque and time intensive and administration mm -hmm. heavy. And so it just never really has been done. So that would be one thing would be to kind of streamline the process. I don't know about the consecutive terms issue, um, whether that would be, whether that's part of the desired reforms, but um, yeah. And I think maybe as a, as a, as a kind of closing question, uh, you mentioned this commission of, of civil society organizations and, and trade unions and so on. When thinking about the sort of article period that he has been in over the past, say, 10 years and the way there's sort of been a kind of revolutionary fervor on the ground as discontent starts to heighten and, and escalate and Haitians are, are fed up with the uh, the stagnancy of of political elites and 
the economic decline and the way in which Haitian society is increasingly becoming unviable. What direction might that take, do you think? And and how could it possibly sustain itself? I mean, it's it's it always it's always unavoidable in a conversation about Haiti, but you know, Haiti's uh, a historically significant country because it it birthed one of the most significant revolutions in in human history. And I just started reading a uh, a new biography on Toussaint Louverture's life, um, Sudhir Hazari Singh's biography, which I think you reviewed for for the LRB. And when thinking about that that revolutionary legacy, uh, to what extent has it carried into the present moment? To what extent is it something that still inspires Haitians? And and in this in this moment of of sort of rebuilding, but a re a desire for rebuilding from below rather than from the top. Uh, where might that go, and and how does Haiti sort of strengthen this coalition of of different forces that are are trying to to generally implement change and and wrestle power and political control away from from the minorities that control it at the moment. Um, uh, I mean, I think those are those are great questions. I think that I think I'm going to talk a little bit about the Hazari Singh book um, and Toussaint uh, more generally. Um, you know, he he was um, very much an idealist, um, and the problem is that, you know, toward, you know, he faced a lot. You can kind of see what I was talking about before with um, this idea that a Haitian president or Haitian leader has to, you think that he's supposed to serve um, the people who elected him or put him in power, but it turns out actually he's got to mm. worry about um, the Im the imperial powers, this is Toussaint, um, a lot, just a lot. And that affects um, the that affects very strongly the the way that he governs. So, you know, and Toussaint was sort of um, was in a lot of ways like a very idealistic, like very um, like proto human rights sort of stuff, right? But mm -hmm. as as he faced more and more pressure from France um, and you know no support from the United States um, or really Britain, um, he ended up needing a lot of foreign exchange. And so he needed foreign exchange to, um, this was a pattern that began then, but it you know continues in various iterations throughout Haiti's history. Um, he needed to defend the country and defend the country's, um, well, at that point, you know, Toussaint wasn't, he needed to defend the colony, basically. Mm -hmm. um, he needed to defend the colony's independence. He needed to defend, um, you know, the right of self-governance. Um, and to do that requires a lot of money um, uh, and to make a lot of money, like what do you do? You try to like export stuff and then you find yourself, um, you know, urging like basically coercing labor back onto plantations in a version of, you know, political economy that looks a lot like slavery. Um, even if the people who were on those plantations were in, were formally free. Mm. So, so there's a way in which, no, I was just going to say there's a way in which uh, Toussaint's brief period in, in, in power kind of prefigures a lot of the dilemmas and the constraints that Haitian leaders are, are still facing today. For sure, for sure. Um, only now, like at this point, like there aren't, there aren't really a lot of natural resources to kind of, to kind of play with um, the way there were and there, you know, I mean, it's, uh, they, there's not a lot that they, mm -hmm. that um, Haitian leaders can really uh, use in that fight. Mm. And I mean, I suppose one, maybe one sort of, another difference is that thinking back to, well, Toussaint was this big, powerful, charismatic leader. And when when thinking about the pattern of uh, revolution and anti-colonial transformation, which happened throughout the global South, it's always 
this case of uh, being led uh, and steered by a charismatic leader. Um, I, I guess the question is thinking about the another difference maybe to draw out is that uh, back then, you know, Toussaint was this big, powerful, charismatic leader, the later revolution and the pattern throughout the global South in in the anti-colonial revolutionary tradition has been this reliance on, on charismatic leaders. And it sort of seems like post post-colonial contexts are now at a at a juncture where the supply of inspiring and charismatic leaders has been exhausted. Uh, and it's kind of forcing the masses, I suppose, to 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 develop and build popular power. Do you think that's where where Haiti is at the moment with the efforts to to initiate this commission? Um, and what do you think that commission and the coalition of forces it's trying to to stitch together? Uh, where do you think it might head? I I mean, yeah, I think that I think that's really well. I think that's that's a that's a really good and hopeful observation. Um, I, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would, I would venture that at this point, um, Haitians are kind of tired of charismatic leaders, right? And um, <laughs> we <I> all are. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> They've exhausted us. Um, um, I mean, I think so. I hope so. Um, I, I hope that, uh, I hope that um, the, I, I think that there are a lot of hopes um, uh, among uh, Haiti watchers and people inside Haiti that this um, commission can um, can sort of unite a whole bunch of you know different different interests um, behind a behind a powerful enough banner um, to make you know the powers that be pay attention and listen to it. Um, I think infighting when you have a group that big is always a, is always an mm -hmm. issue. Um, but right now it doesn't, right now it seems like, um, I think that there's a, from what I hear, it seems like there's a, a genuinely collective spirit to it. Well, I'm, I'm going to stay hopeful and, uh, believe that that spirit will, will be sustained in the, in the coming moment. And, you know, as we as we do the show, we just sort of realize how applicable the problems that Haiti faces are to South Africa, to the rest of the continent. So lots of lessons to learn and we'll be watching it closely. And thank you so much, Pooja, for, for coming onto the program today and helping us sort of demystify the, the crises, which I think gets a lot of uh, thin coverage in the media. So really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, this was another episode of Africa's A Country Talk. We'll be back again next week uh, with me, your host, William Schrocki from Johannesburg, South Africa, and produced by Antoinette Engel, as always. Do follow us on social media at Africa as a Country on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, check out the website where we do our main work, which is publishing brilliant pieces that give perspectives on world affairs from an African standpoint. Until next time, goodbye.